0: I'm Richard Hollingham, and this time in the Planet Earth podcast, how teeth can reveal the past, plus in glorious 3D, giant spiders and monstrous prehistoric millipedes.
1: And these are quite chunky. They grew up to about three metres in the Carboniferous period <laughs> when, when they lived about 360 to 300 million years ago.
0: I'm at the Natural Environment Research Council's Isotope Geosciences Laboratory at Keyworth near Nottingham. I'll be asking what isotope geosciences are in just a moment. Let me just describe the room I'm in. It's a small windowless laboratory with a desk, a microscope, a magnifier, and some teeth. And with me is Jane Evans. Before we get onto the teeth, Jane, what are isotope geosciences?
2: Well, an element with different isotopes means that that element has slightly different characteristics depending on the weight. So an isotope refers to a particular mass of an element. So, for instance, something like strontium would have 84 mass, 86, 87 and 88. Now, these are very important because they enable you to fingerprint and trace certain processes because the different isotopes will behave in different ways.
0: So how are you using this? Effectively, you're using it to, to look back in time.
2: Yes. In archaeology, we're using strontium isotopes... And the variations in strontium isotopes are related to the different types of rock. Because the rocks weather and form soils, and then the plants live in the soils, any animal or human that eats plants picks up a signature that's absolutely typical of the underlying rocks. And because these vary across Britain and across the world, we use these as fingerprints.
0: Now, you've got some teeth in in bags here. That's a small bag here. Let's go for this one first. This is a, a human tooth in here?
2: This is a human molar, a second molar, and this is typically what we use in archaeological studies. And we would cut this tooth up, we would clean off all the outside surface and the inside dentine, and then we would end up with a small piece of enamel like these fragments here. So
0: you've got a little, in... tiny, little tiny tube here with these pinhead side, gravel like almost, fragments of enamel.
2: Why teeth? Well, Teeth, because, or specifically tooth enamel, because it's basically a mineral. It's tough and it's resistant and it doesn't get affected by being buried in the soil for thousands of years. Whereas bones, although they are preserved, they are not unaltered. They, they change and they react with waters in the soil. But the tooth enamel is so resistant that it retains the life signal even after 5,000 years of burial.
0: So you've got these, these fragments of, of tooth enamel. Which is fine. I mean, we can even see them under the microscope. But actually, you just look at them under the, uh, the magnifying lens. And they just look like bigger chips of, yeah. of tooth <laughs> enamel. How do you analyse these?
2: Well, what we do is we dissolve them in acid. And then we put them on a chromatography column. It, it works if... if if you were of the in my era, where you put ink on blotting paper... This is the filter
0: paper at school. ...and, and saw yeah, it okay. spread out into
2: mm. colours, that's exactly the same process. You put this sample on a resin, and all the different elements spread out. The strontium is separated from the calcium, which is the main or other element in the tooth that we worry about. And so we can collect just the strontium. Then we dry it down, we put it in a beaker, and then we load it into the mass spectrometer... And the mass spectrometer is a machine that can analyse the isotope ratios of the strontium. And after about an hour of analysis, we get the result.
0: So you can tell where the person who had the tooth came from by the type of isotope in the tooth. Is that right?
2: Yes. As I say, because the different areas of geology in Britain give you different fingerprints, it's fairly straightforward to distinguish somebody that, let's say, was brought up on the chalk downs from somebody who was brought up in Scotland.
0: Now, you've looked at at teeth from around Stonehenge.
2: Tell me about that. I think that's very interesting because we've done a number of burials around Stonehenge and I think the first thing you can say is that um, very few of them are local people who were were raised in the Stonehenge area. We had a couple of studies. One of the early ones was a Bronze Age burial, a very rich Bronze Age burial with lots of artefacts, who was called the Amesbury Archer. And when we looked at his tooth enamel, the oxygen isotopes in particular showed that he couldn't possibly have spent his childhood in Britain, but that he probably came from Central Europe, perhaps uh, in Germany.
0: And what sort of period are we talking about? What, 2000, 2500 BC, something like that?
2: Yes, that's, that's the Bronze Age, yes. And so if he came from
0: that, that far, suggests migration is not a new, new phenomenon.
2: No, I think if there's one thing that these studies are showing up is that people have been mobile and moving around from the beginning of time basically as far as the uk is concerned
0: and you've also got another tooth here which is which is relevant to to stonehenge it's a it's huge (laughs) Um, it's uh, about the size of three of my three of my fingers and this is a, a cow's tooth
2: yes yes that's a cow's tooth of course in archaeological deposits there are often remains of the animals that they fed on and used as meat and particularly in the Stonehenge area there are large deposits of animal remains and one of the projects that we're just starting on is to look at these animal remains and to look at where the animals came from using strontium and then relate that obviously to the owners of the animals and to see if they brought these animals to Stonehenge
0: rather than they were local animals from Stonehenge?
2: Yes or rather than you know there being farmers producing material for Stonehenge when it had Lots of people descend upon it.
0: Now, I said this tooth was enormous. It's also ridged. It's, it's almost like a corrugated card in it, in its structure. I suppose this is for, for munching up grass. But what you found was it, it wasn't a, a local... These weren't local cows.
2: No, some of the animals appeared to come from really quite significant distances away. Certainly several of them would probably need to have come from somewhere like Hereford. It's sort of 100, 150 kilometres away. And one at the moment has such a high value that... Um, Well, it's Scotland or somewhere else, as far as I can tell. But uh, it's fascinating to see the diversity of of origins of these animals and to infer the diversity of people coming to Stonehenge.
0: Does this tell us anything about Stonehenge and the purpose of Stonehenge, this big
2: mystery? Well, I think it it tells you... Obviously, I I, I tend to think of it like the Glastonbury Festival or something as a modern analogy. You've just got people coming in from all over for events bringing their own food leaving their own rubbish and sort of 5,000 years later we're sort of rummaging through their rubbish and finding out things about them that they never could have imagined were possible. So really the evidence
0: is that it was it was certainly a gathering a gathering place of some description.
2: Certainly a, a gathering place for people from really quite disparate areas of Britain and possibly the continent.
0: Well, thanks, Jane. We'll talk okay. some more, more later. And the new maps of Jane's work are on the Planet Earth online website. Now, if you've ever been fossil hunting, it might have involved walking along a beach and picking up stones or chipping away somewhat haphazardly at flaking rocks. For Russell Garwood, though, that's kid stuff. He uses cutting-edge technology to see fossils in three dimensions and in unprecedented detail. Sue Nelson went to meet Russell in his lab at Imperial College London.
1: This is a uh, fossil from France. It's an early relative of the millipedes. It's about three centimetres long. It's made up of lots and lots of individual chunks, probably about 30 or 40.
3: And you can see some of the, the legs here, can't you, even though not its entire body is, is missing
1: Yep, you can indeed. So uh, underneath each one of these, there's a plate on the top, then there's a body, and underneath that there's a pair of legs. And these are quite chunky. They grew up to about three metres in the Carboniferous period <laughs> when when they lived about 360 to 300 million years ago.
3: Now, this is a, a fairly detailed fossil that you, you've opened up for me here. What's wrong with something like this when actually you can see rather a lot?
1: Well, with something like this, when you split the rock open, it normally breaks along a single surface. So any limbs that go in, into the rock, for example, or any other aspects that aren't revealed by the crack which you just created, we can't get out the rock. That limits the information we can get. In examples like this, many of the legs go inside, and at one end, the uh, head actually goes into the rock itself, so we've got no idea where the head of this creature is, or in fact how many segments it has, because we can't see the entire creature.
3: So what do you do then that does give you a better picture of of a fossil?
1: We uh, take a fossil like this and we place it in a CT scanner. This takes a large number of X-rays while the fossil rotates around 360 degrees. And then it uses those to create a picture of what's going on inside the rock in terms of its density
3: that fossil was a type of millipede. What creature in particular are you most interested in looking at?
1: I work on a a range of animals. I've worked on a group of early arachnids related to spiders called the Trignos harbids and I've also recently been working on cockroaches.
3: You mentioned that this fossil is from France. Are the early relatives of spiders that you're, you're looking at, are they also from France?
1: No, those are from uh, Coesley in the West Midlands in the UK. And those are fossils which were discovered in the Victorian era when people were actually mining coal in the area. And Victorian collectors, we used to walk around looking at the spoil heaps and splitting open rocks looking for fossils. So those have been sitting in museums for about 100 years. And now we're going through those and trying to find ones that look three-dimensional that we can scan and get some information from.
3: Let's look at the sort of three-dimensional images that you've got then. They're quite impressive, aren't they? And even though this is on a computer screen, you can see the depth of image that you've got compared to a a very flat surface.
1: We have to look for the rare ones where they're not flattened. When a creature dies and sinks to the seafloor, often it falls between layers of rock and there's time for it to be squashed. That's not the case here. So we choose our fossils very carefully from places which have three-dimensional preservation to be able to get this depth. And as you say in this one, we've managed to get limbs that went several millimetres into the rock itself. So this is essentially a fossil that wasn't squashed in any way after it died and before it was incorporated into this rock.
3: Incredible detail here on, on the image, and it does look like a, very much like a spider. What can you see using this technique that you can't see through looking at a fossil the traditional way?
1: Well, using this technique, we've been able to uh, resolve the limbs in full. So uh, before, we knew there were limbs there, but we couldn't see anything about them. And that can tell us quite a lot about the creature. For example, the uh, front limbs up here um, so
3: on that, yeah.
1: are rotated around, and they can kind of be held in front of the creature as if it was um, snapping for animals in front of it. So this is a stance we see in modern crab spiders, which sit on the side of flowers waiting for insects to fly by for nectar and grab them. So that suggests that if we're seeing it in this creature, that this too was an ambush predator. It could lie in wait for an animal to come by and then use its outstretched arms to grab that creature.
3: So you're learning a lot more about animals from the past using this technique than you ever could before.
1: Absolutely. For fossils where they are preserved in three dimensions, this can absolutely revolutionise our study of fossils from this era.
3: And it's not as if you're going to a hospital to use a CT scan and kicking a patient off the, uh, off the machine, are you?
1: No. To be able to scan rocks, we need far more powerful x-rays than they use in hospital CT, CT scanners. And there's a CT scanner at the Natural History Museum in London built Which for this Which is
3: conveniently examples. next door.
1: Indeed, yes. Just a five-minute walk away. And that has uh, x-rays that can penetrate even the densest of rocks like the iron-rich ones I work on.
0: Russell Garwood at Imperial College London, and you can see some of those images on the Planet Earth online website. This is the Planet Earth podcast. I'm Richard Hollingham, and this is Tamara Jones with some other news from the natural world. Hello, fish
4: first. Hello, Richard. Yes, well, this story shows that even sticklebacks understand that patience is a virtue, and sometimes you just have to wait your turn when they feed sticklebacks look for safety in numbers and they just won't go out feeding on their own it's just too dangerous you know they're afraid of getting attacked for, uh, by predators so some university of cambridge researchers wanted to sort of see what would happen to these fish or to sticklebacks if they were faced with that problem of eating alone feeding alone so they trained sticklebacks to expect food on either the right hand side or the left hand side of a fish tank and then what they did was they paired two fish from either side that preferred eating on either side together to see what they would do. You know, how on earth would they go out to feed? or What would they do? And it turns out that each fish was willing to take turns to escort the other fish to its preferred side of the tank, which is, uh, well, I guess it makes sense, really, because each fish benefits, because being accompanied means that they lowers the risk of being attacked by a predator.
0: Now, also this week, an epic journey for for one particular bird species.
4: This is an amazing story about those amazing Arctic terns. And scientists at the British Antarctic Survey found that Arctic terns fly an epic eighty thousand kilometres every year, flying from the Arctic to the Antarctic. So,
0: eighty thousand.
4: Eighty thousand. Now, what's what's amazing about per this? Year. Every year. But what's amazing about this is that scientists used to think it was forty thousand kilometres. It's eighty thousand. It's doubled. This is amazing. But the, the average turn lives for about 25 years, and, but some turns get to about 30. So for, for those turns that get to 30, that's like flying to the moon and back three times in a lifetime. But what the researchers think is that they're using the um, prevailing winds, prevailing global wind systems to help them migrate over such huge distances.
0: Back to the seas then for your final story.
4: Yes, well, this one's about coral reefs, which are some of the world's, some of the planet's richest and most diverse habitats, But they're threatened by climate change and ocean acidification, also overfishing. And because they take such a long time to grow, conservationists thought that reefs that were damaged by fishing just wouldn't recover. They'd be just doomed. But now it seems that protecting reefs from future fishing could actually help them recover from damage much quicker than scientists previously thought. The researchers think that the difference is down to more parrotfish grazing at the protective reefs because the fish eat seaweeds, which the corals compete with for sunlight and nutrients.
0: Well, thank you, Tamara, and details on all those stories, of course, on Planet Earth Online. Well, this podcast is from the Natural Environment Research Council's Isotope Geosciences Laboratory near Nottingham. Now, we established what that all meant earlier. So let's talk more about what you can do with isotopes. and. Jane Evans is still with me. You can probably hear by the sound, we've moved. And in a laboratory now, much bigger than the first, and at my feet a barrel-sized flask of nitrogen. There are computers and printouts, tubes, flasks, wires, coils. Jane, this looks like a proper laboratory.
2: Yes. This is one of our mass spectrometer laboratories, and uh, you've got uh, five or six mass spectrometers in here, which are largely dedicated to the analysis of nitrogen isotopes, carbon, oxygen and sulphur.
0: Now, we, we talked about teeth from, well, we were talking really 2,000, 2,500 BC before and how you could analyse these and, and tell something about the people where they came from and where they were going to. Can you do the same now? Could, could my teeth betray my origins?
2: Well, that, that's an interesting question uh, and to a certain extent we, we don't have the answer to that. We haven't done so much research in that area, but... If you think that the reason we can do this in the past is because we make the assumption that people are living locally and deriving their food and water locally. Now, you only have to think about a supermarket to realise that uh, you and me, we get our food from international sources. So the probability is that for modern Western diet, the system won't work as well. So it
0: might work for some parts of the world or someone grew up in a particularly rural area and stayed there.
2: Yes, I think so. And there's some evidence that uh, studies from uh, rural sites in Mexico suggest that people are still showing a relationship to the land. And there was a case of Adam, the torso in the Thames. Because the police had so little uh, site evidence to go on, they used isotopes in that case. His samples did suggest that he didn't have a Western diet, so we were able to, they were able to exclude the fact that he was raised in Britain.
0: Another thing you can look at, though, is lead. And lead levels?
2: Yes, lead's an interesting element because our body doesn't want or need lead. It's effectively a poison. And if you look at lead levels in Neolithic individuals, they are extremely low and difficult to analyse. Then as people start to use metal artefacts, they drink out of pewter, they have lead piping, you see the lead values in teeth rise as as a a reflection of this contamination. When you get to the industrial period, you start to pick up the effect of coal and... uh, Industrial pollution, and for the likes of uh, my generation, I've got uh, lead pollution related to petrol lead. And the fascinating thing about that is that the lead that was put in petrol in Britain is derived from Australia, so I have Australian petrol lead in my teeth.
0: So I probably had that as well growing up in the 70s.
2: You do, but my children who grew up in the 90s and sort of after lead was removed from petrol. Um, have very extremely low values of lead, back, really, to the sort of Neolithic values.
0: So this has still got quite a potential, but you've got to refine it before you can tell much about us and our history.
2: Yes, I think you certainly have to understand the complexity of modern cultural society before you interpret this data, and you have to take that into account, because it is a very different situation from in the past.
0: Jane Evans, thank you very much. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Well, there are many more stories from the natural world on the Planet Earth online website. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Richard Hollingham. The Planet Earth podcast is produced by the Natural Environment Research Council. If you enjoy it, do tell your friends.